It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Today is Friday, August 30th, 2019. On this day in 1850, Dr. John White Webster, a professor of chemistry and geology at Harvard University, was executed for killing his colleague, George Parkman. Prior to the execution, Massachusetts Governor George Briggs received a telegram. It read, Dear Sir, the undersigned begs the pleasure of your company on Friday morning, August 30, at number 5 Leverett Street to witness a murder. A dish of tea will be taken after the awful ceremony. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Every day, we tell a timely story from true crime history and analyze the historical impact of that day's events. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today, we're looking at the execution of John W. Webster. Webster was a Harvard professor who became famous for murdering a member of one of Boston's oldest families. Webster was hanged for his crime on August 30th, 1850. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Let's go back to that morning just before dawn in a Boston prison. Dr. Webster awoke to the sound of hammers striking nails. It was just before dawn. He had passed the night restlessly, attempting to read to put his mind off his impending doom. Some books, such as Mountford's Euthanasy or Happy Talks Towards the End of Life, were not terribly helpful. When he finally was through with the books, he had turned to a collection of seashells he found embedded in his prison floor which he set about polishing until they gleamed in the meager light of the cell. It seemed fitting that a man who had spent much of his life studying geology would while away his last few hours picking minerals off of the floor of a jail cell. Webster could hear people entering the prison yard, already gathering to see his demise. The hammering continued as the prison carpenter constructed the gallows that would end Webster's life. A voice came from the steadily growing throng of onlookers. Stop your infernal clack. It disturbs the prisoner in his prayers. Webster had to smile. Though these men and women were gathering to watch him die, their consideration was somehow touching. He rose from his cot and took the Bible from his pile of books. He was to die at 8 o'clock that morning. There was plenty of time to make his peace with the Almighty. But Webster found his mind wandering. His trial had packed the courthouse in Suffolk. 
how many would show up to see his execution? He had tried to avoid reading any newspaper coverage of the whole fiasco, but often it was too tempting. He had, in certain circles, become a household name. That revelation put a bitter taste in Webster's mouth as he tried to speak his prayers. As if on cue, Webster's confessor, the Reverend Putnam, arrived. The two of them prayed together in the growing morning light. As warmth washed over cell five, Webster felt like the heavens were opening to receive his prayers. Once they were finished, the guards offered Webster breakfast, tea, and a final smoke. He accepted them gratefully. Somehow, incredibly, his hands had stopped shaking overnight. He found himself in a strange sense of calm, despite the doom that stood on his doorstep. As he ate, he mused to the guards that he had experimented on many bodies from this very execution ground during his time at Harvard. Webster wondered if some diligent young physician would follow in his footsteps and do similar experiments on his mortal remains. He finished his meal and lit a cigar for himself. He gave his remaining cigars to the guards. When they attempted to refuse, he insisted he had no more use for them. Reverend Putnam stood beside Webster as the guards ushered him out into the field. The prison yard was packed with spectators. Citizens of Boston jostled shoulder to shoulder to watch the execution. Putnam muttered to Webster, Do not regard anything about you. Do not look. Webster calmly replied, I do not look. My thoughts are elsewhere. There were a thousand screaming faces around him, but he saw none of them. The face he did see had been dead for over seven months. George Parkman, patron, businessman, physician, a member of the Boston Brahmins, and thus one of the wealthiest men he had ever met. His victim. Webster recalled their meeting a thousand times a day. He remembered Parkman screaming at him, enraged that he had not paid his debt. Did he push Webster up against the counter, or was that just his memory twisting the facts? He remembered feeling Parkman's hot breath against his cheeks and hearing the man's threats. Webster had seized a block of wood and struck Parkman across the side of the head. He felt the shock travel up his arm as Parkman went down. Webster did not have to strike again. When Parkman hit the floor, all life had gone from his body. As he climbed the steps to the gallows, Webster marveled that such an instantaneous decision could destroy two lives. But he supposed it wasn't so instantaneous, was it? It was hours of cutting, sawing, washing, burning, and burying. Attempting to hide the pieces of Parkman in his laboratory, concealing his foul deed in the walls of Harvard itself. If he was damned to hell today, that would be why. 
Not the moment of rage, but the hours of calm, dispassionate disposal. He was shaken from his reverie by the guards fitting a noose around his neck. As Sheriff Eveleth read his crimes, Webster took the Reverend Putnam's hand, shaking it gratefully. The sheriff stood by a small pedal on the gallows stage, a modern contraption rigged to the trap door beneath the victim's feet. He asked Webster if he had any final words. Webster nodded. He did not address the sheriff nor the crowd, instead turning his head to the skies above him. Father, he said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. With nothing more to add, Webster looked over to Reverend Putnam, meeting his confessor's eyes one last time before Sheriff Eveleth pulled the black hood over his head. Up next, we'll examine the cutting-edge forensics that led to Dr. Webster's conviction for murder. Now, back to the story. The murder of George Parkman by John Webster was an absolute sensation in mid-1800s Boston. Not only was Parkman a well-known figure in the community, he was a member of the Brahmins, Boston's wealthy upper class. Killing a Boston Brahmin was an unspeakable affront to the Massachusetts elite. Parkman was last seen on the afternoon of November 23, 1849, entering Harvard Medical College. His servants and Beacon Hill neighbors noted his absence almost immediately, and soon Boston police were out in force, searching for the missing man. After a week of false leads, the Boston police received their first real clue. On November 30th, a janitor at Harvard made a grisly discovery. He found dissected and partially burned human remains in one of the laboratories. The laboratory was primarily used by Dr. John Webster, who was subsequently taken into police custody. Webster willingly admitted to taking a loan from Parkman, but claimed he hadn't seen the man since their last meeting. Webster was put on trial for murder, but the prosecution faced an immediate problem, identifying beyond a reasonable doubt that the body parts from Webster's lab belonged to Parkman. Finally, during the trial, the prosecution called George Parkman's dentist to the stand. Among the ashes in Webster's furnace, police recovered a small collection of gold teeth. The dentist positively identified the teeth as dentures he had made for George Parkman that December. Additionally, he identified pieces of the jawbone as belonging to Parkman's very peculiar mouth. This was the first capital murder case in America to use dental evidence to secure a verdict. On April 1, 1850, Webster was convicted by a jury and sentenced to death. Between the sentencing and the date of his hanging, Webster wrote a confession. He explained he had murdered Parkman in a sudden rage when the man became aggressive toward him about the unpaid debt. He was hanged just after 9 a.m. on August 30, 1850. 
Rumor has it that the case, and particularly its forensic solution, inspired Charles Dickens to begin work on his famously unfinished whodunit, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. Dickens had met Webster in 1842, and during an 1867 visit to America, requested to view the man's old rooms. In the years following the deaths of Parkman and Webster, the two men were enshrined by popular culture as broad archetypes. Parkman as the miserly rich man, and Webster as the unreliable and defensive debtor. In fact, despite his murderous act, Webster was more fondly remembered by acquaintances than his victim. Few came forward to say good things about George Parkman after his untimely death. Harvard mathematician Benjamin Peirce described the whole affair rather bluntly, writing, Dr. Parkman was so harsh and cruel a man with his debtors that his murder seems almost to have been a retribution of providence designed to teach us an appalling lesson. Whatever moral the people of Boston learned from this Ivy League homicide, it was a landmark case in forensic police work and a warning that even accomplished physicians cannot completely conceal evidence of their crimes. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode of Today in True Crime is written by Robert Teamstra. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 